Uh, I'll be focusing this morning just on, on Luke chapter 16, verse 18. But in order to, uh, to set the context, I'm going to uh, go all the way from, from verse 1. So Luke 16, verse 1. And I need to say, Patricia, it's very good to see you. It's such a joy to be able to have you with us this morning. Okay, uh, Luke 16. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me to their houses. So, summoning the master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness for in dealing with their own generation, Sorry, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends with yourselves, for yourselves, by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? If you have not been faithful in what is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. They said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John, and since then the good news of the kingdom has been preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. This is the word of our Lord. May he write eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory for the building of his church. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Almighty God, we praise you for this passage. Lord, even though this is a hard passage, it's hard exegetically and it's it's hard relationally and emotionally. Lord, this is your word. And this is your word for us this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to hear your word, to believe your word, to submit to your word, and to respond to your word, that your name might be exalted amongst us. Lord, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to let go of, of any unbiblical presuppositions. Lord, I pray that you would help us to ground our faith and practice solely on your all-sufficient 
word. And Lord, if there's anything that I would say here this morning that does not line up with your word, Lord, I, I pray that it would have no ill effect. I, I pray that it would not, that it just be forgotten. But Lord, that which I say, which is true and, and accurately reflects your word, I pray that you would use it for your glory and for the advance of your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love marriage. I love marriage as an institution. I love marriage for what it represents. I love marriage because the Lord has blessed me with marriage. I love working with Jane to, to go through pre-engagement and pre-marital counseling with couples who love Christ and couples who love each other. I love doing weddings. I get the best seat in the house for one of the happiest moments as in people's lives as they covenant together in holy matrimony. Some of the greatest joys are found in the God-instituted covenant of marriage. No other human relationship has the potential to bring so much joy. When a couple stands together in the sight of God and the presence of a face of a, a company of witnesses to join together in holy matrimony, there's something very solemn and something very special that is taking place. They come together in covenant before the holy God. And when I do a wedding, I prefer that the couple use the traditional vows. I really don't think there's much you can do to improve on them. I'll say to the groom by name, do you insert bride's name, do you insert groom's name here? Have so-and-so your, to be your lawfully wedded wife, to live together after God's holy ordinance in the holiest state of matrimony, to love her, comfort her, honor her, and keep her in sickness and in health, and in forsaking all others, keep you only unto her as long as you both shall live. Then I'll turn and I'll ask the bride the same question. And thankfully, so far, every bride and every groom that I've done this with has said, I do. Then I'll tell the groom to repeat after me, I, groom, take you, bride, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish forever according to God's holy ordinance. Now I ask, what token do you bring? And he'll say, I bring this ring as a token of my love. And then the, the bride will make the same vow. Then I'll, I'll make a pronouncement. Those whom God has joined, let not man put asunder. For as much as groom and bride have consented together in holy matrimony, have witnessed the same before God and this company of witnesses, and there to have given their pledge before each other and have declared the same by the giving and receiving of the ring and by joining hands by the power vested in me, I now pronounce you husband and wife. You may now kiss your bride. And then I present them as Mr. and Mrs. for the first time. I get to use the, the, the bride's new name for the first time. It's an immense privilege. And most of us here have have experienced something very similar to this. And I love doing weddings. But I've never actually married anyone. Well, I've never married anyone except my wife, Jane. But even there, I didn't marry Jane. Trust me, I hope you understand what I'm saying here, that I didn't marry her. It's just I don't marry couples when they, they come before I 
It is God who marries couples. It is God who joins them together. It's not me. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 19, 5 and 6, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He says there are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now notice here that, that Jesus, in that context, as he talks about this, he's actually referring back to the first marriage, back to the institution of marriage when God was the efficient in the marriage when he brought together Adam and Eve and joined them together in the first marriage covenant. Two have become one flesh joined by God. Now, if a man had joined you together, you could a man could separate you, but a man did not join you. God did. What God has joined, man must not separate. In reality, what God has joined, man cannot separate. If God has ordained marriage, it is God who, and God is the one who joins men and women together in holy matrimony, then why do so many couples seek divorce? The short answer is that, that while some of the greatest joys can be found in the context of marriage, for many, some of the deepest trials can be found in the context of marriage. And no other human relationship has the potential to bring so much joy. But again, no other human relationship has the potential to bring so much sorrow either. You know, growing up, I only had a few friends. I grew up very much outside the church. and only a few friends whose parents were still married. And, and many of us here have been impacted personally by divorce. Not alone in this. Over the past 20 years in Canada, the divorce rate has been a staggering 38%. 38%. Almost half of all marriages end in divorce. And it's expected that the, the divorce rate in Canada is going to climb dramatically when the courts are reopened fully at the end of, of the COVID lockdown. Many other Western countries have found that their divorce rates during COVID have skyrocketed by an additional 30%. An additional 30%. That, that would fully mean that, that half of marriage, if that's the case here in Canada, that, that over, ha over half now of marriages will end in divorce. So why is that? Why particularly during COVID? Well, living in such close quarters with the, the lack of, of outside support, financial strains, health strains, ever-changing government restrictions, and the uncertainty of the future have all taken their toll. But hear me on this. These stressors have not created the problem within marriage. These stressors have revealed the problems that are already there in marriage. It just became the crucible whereby these things are are where they grow and they, they become so, so focused for us that it's, it's all we can see. And for some people, they believe that the only hope is to leave the marriage, to, to, to forsake the covenant that they have made with God, to forsake the, the one with whom they have covenanted. Now, I know that, I know that the issues are... And, and why people pursue marriage are, are, are many, and they're, they're complex, and they're painful. But it saddens me deeply when, when, when people become so hopeless, they feel they have no other recourse but to seek divorce. 
And I'm sure it saddens these people as well. It's not that somebody gets into marriage thinking that they're going to get divorced. It's not something that they do, I trust, lightly. But there's somebody else who is saddened by divorce. Far more, in fact, than me and, and far more even than the people who are seeking divorce. The one who created the institution of marriage is saddened by divorce. In fact, he's more than just saddened by divorce. He's actually angered by divorce. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Malachi 2.16, that's in the NASB. Well, this brings us back to my text for this morning, Luke 16.18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Well, while I love talking about marriage, talking about divorce is a lot more difficult, especially when you get into the issue of divorce and remarriage. These are, these are, are sticky issues. It's difficult exegetically, and it's difficult emotionally. And like I say, left to, my, to myself, if it weren't for sequential expositional preaching, I would not rush to preach passages like Luke 16, 18. But this is God's word, and, and my mandate is to proclaim the whole counsel of God's word. And, and so I would be failing in my duty as a pastor if I did not teach on these things, as difficult as they are, as difficult as they are in the study, as difficult as they are in this room. Because I know that there are many of you are personally impacted by these things. This is a painful subject. This cuts close to the bone. Many of us have had loved ones who have, have gone through this, and, and, and some of us have, have experienced and, and done this ourselves. So when it, it talks to, when, when the scriptures talk about divorce or marriage, there, there's, there's some differing opinions as to, to what, is, what constitutes grounds for divorce and, and what constitutes grounds for remarriage. Well, the two most common views, and the ones we're going to focus on here this morning, are the, the so-called permanence view, in that there are no, there is to be no remarriage after divorce. There is grounds for divorce in the case of desertion, but the believer should never seek divorce. But if an unbeliever is, is forcing that upon you, and the one who wants to depart, you are free. You can let them depart. That's the permanence view. But there are, under the permanence view, there are no grounds for remarriage. The other is the two exceptions view, that the only grounds for divorce and remarriage are adultery and desertion. And, and so within, within the evangelical and, and especially the, the reformed evangelical community, these are the two most prominent views. And of those, the second one that I talked about, the, the two exceptions view, is actually the most common. And for, for many years, prior to becoming a vocational pastor, I, I loosely held to the two exceptions view. That again, that the only biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage are adultery and desertion. And for a long time, I really said I could afford to do this. I wasn't a vocational pastor. I, I, I put this issue in a too hard basket, knowing that, that somehow, eventually, I'm going to have to come back and address these things in, in the Bible. That pastorally, there's going to be uh, implications of what I believe. And I better make sure that my position is biblical and, and well-reasoned and, and bathed in prayer, but grounded in the word of God. And so through the, the process of, of preparing for ministry, in fact, I was taking a, 
um, a marriage and family course in my very last semester at seminary, and I was I was pre-reading an excellent book by Andreas Kostenberger called uh, um, called God, Marriage, and Family, and an individual approached me about a a about a relationship that they were involved in, and I was just back for a couple of weeks on break during during the summer from from seminary, and and this individual, a pastor. And she approached me about this. And so I said, oh man, I better, I better read ahead of the book to try to figure out what I could do. And I, I prayed earnestly. I sought counsel as to, as to how to respond to this individual. And I found that through the process of my studies, my view was beginning to change. And I had to write a paper on, on this, this issue in, in seminary. It's my final semester in seminary. And, and again, I started with the position of the two exceptions, but by the time I got to the end, my position was changing. And by the time I, I came just a few short months later to, to pastor this church where, where I had previously been a, been a member, I, I, was, I was firmly holding to the position of, of the permanence view of marriage. So much so that in the context of, of my call, and the, during the interview process, I said, look, I, I, I know the church doesn't have an official position on this, but my personal position is that I, I, I cannot in good conscience perform second marriages unless somebody's passed away. And so I, I've, I've taught on this very early on, and in in I, I taught on the, the, after preaching the Philippians, I taught on the Sermon on the Mount, and this issue um, came up there in Matthew 5, 31, 32, as a passage we'll be looking at today. But again, this, this the, the position that I have, I, don't, I, don't, I really hope that I don't come across as just hard and, and uncaring. It's really the opposite. I, I just really need to, to, to teach what I believe the Word of God says on this issue. And Pastor Joshua has come also to this position independently. Before we come to this church, he also holds to the same position. And I, just, I believe that the, the permanence view most accurately explains the biblical passages on this issue. But as mentioned from the outset, this, this message is going to be a little bit different from the norm. Whereas normally I would, I would spend the, the bulk of my time in explanation and application of the passage before us, this time I want to, to diverge from our regular practice. This time I, I want to use this passage as an example of how to study God's Word. So first of all, I'm going to want to take you through five principles that, that you can see here in our studies of, of how we, we look at this issue from the Word of God. So these five principles that then I believe will actually be applicable to other areas that you're going to study other areas of, of controversy, perhaps, and disagreement within the body of Christ, and, and even at times within this local church. And then I'm going to give you five steps on, on how to study God's Word. So then these, these five principles and these five steps can and should be applied, and you can really go further than this, but, but as, a, as a bare basic approach in, in whenever you're studying God's Word and whatever you're looking at. Again, especially in controversial and potentially painful passages. Okay, so first the five principles. And, and these five principles can really summed up in three points. Submission to God's word, gospel hope from God's word, and gospel unity in God's word. So again, these, these three summation points. Submission to God's word, gospel hope from God's word, and gospel unity in God's word. Again, I believe that these, these 
would be helpful and provide guiding principles in dealing with more difficult issues in scriptures. And you may find it helpful to, to take notes here. Okay, so the first, the first principle then is, is that we learn how to approach the scriptures. We learn how to approach the scriptures. And this is true not just in this issue, this is true across the board. You must know how to approach the scriptures. Sola scriptura, scripture alone is one of the founding, one of the, the founding principles of the Protestant Reformation. It's, it's one of the core distinctives that separates us from the Roman Catholic Church and from, from every cult that's out there. God's word is our only and final authority. Again, divorce or marriage, it's an exegetically challenging issue. There, there are passages that at first glance seem to contradict each other. We're going to see how that's not actually the case. But, but the most important thing to understand here is that Scripture never contradicts itself. Never. That is the most important rule of biblical hermeneutics. The Bible never contradicts itself. This is called the, the, the regular fidei, the rule of faith. And we'll talk about this more later on. Now, Scripture doesn't contradict itself, but theologians will contradict each other, won't they? There are different theologians that have different views. Respected theologians are on different sides of this issue. So John MacArthur is on one, has the one side, he would hold to the, the two exceptions view, and, and John Piper is on the other, he would, would hold to the permanence view. And my per, two of my personal favorite theologians from the, the 20th century, James Montgomery Boyce, held to the permanence view, whereas the, Martin Lloyd-Jones held to the two exceptions view. And these, these men were two of the, the best respected and most prominent theologians in the, the Western world of the late 20th century. Both of them were renowned theologians, Bible scholars, and they held to different views. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this, this two exceptions view is the, is the majority view within Reformed circles. We have to remember here that, that theology is, is not democracy. It's not that, it's not that we actually have the um, we, we take a vote on doctrine and then we say, okay, the majority is, 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 is where we're going to go on this. So therefore, then we, we say, okay, well, if we, we first learn how to approach the scriptures, we need to, to submit to the word of God. It's, it's, it's the way we, well, it's really a large part of what I do in the preparation for a, ser for a sermon. I'm going to go through that uh, later on as we look through the, the five steps. My iPad just crashed. So we're winging it here. The second, the second step, the second principle, rather, is, to, is related to the first. It's the danger of presupposition. The danger of presupposition. And, and by this, what I, what I mean is that there's a great danger in approaching this text or any other text um, of, of having our loyalties divided. Okay, we, can, we can actually have a view of, we, we, we have friends who, who are, um, who, who've been involved in this, and we can be saying, well, I, I don't want to show a lack of support to this person, so I'm just going to go with a position that's not going to offend them. I hope you understand that that is actually 
not a good reason to hold to a particular view. Because you might find in so doing that you might be you might be actually offending God. So be very, very careful about your loyalties. Your loyalty needs to be God to God and His Word. We also need to be careful because we can have personal emotional attachment. Again, especially if, if we if this speaks to us directly. So again, be very, very careful to submit to God and His Word on these things. So then when it comes to to uh, to, to understanding what God's word is saying, we need to, to, to strive to set aside our presuppositions. To, to say, okay, I, uh, my personal presuppositions, there, there's presuppositions that are right and good, but, but we need to, to strive to set aside our, our personal presuppositions that don't line up with, with God's word. And to, to really submit to the text. To, to humble ourselves before the text of God's word and see what God said. So that's, that's the first and the second, again, deal with our approach to the scriptures. Well, the third principle is that there is indeed gospel hope. There is gospel hope for sinners. If You need to, to see that, that, that if you have sinned in this area, you, you need to respond to your sin in a biblical way. And this is not just about, about saying, okay, well, well, you've been divorced, you've been remarried, and so you are sinning. The reality is that, that we have all broken our marriage covenant. Who among us has, has loved or, man, have you loved and cherished your wife? Have you done that perfectly? Women, have you honored your husband as the Bible is calling to you? Have you done that perfectly? Of course not. None of us have really fulfilled our responsibilities before God in our marriage covenant. And so all of us need to humble ourselves before the holy God and realize that we all have some repentance to do. But again, you need to trust that, that, when, that, that God is able to forgive you. Right? 1 John 1, 9, God is, is faithful to forgive and not just to forgive, but to cleanse from all unrighteousness. Confess your sin to God, and He will forgive you. He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And, and where appropriate and necessary, confess your, your sin to the person you've sinned against as well. Ask their forgiveness. So that's, that's the third, is that there, there is gospel hope. There's gospel hope from God's word. Well, the fourth principle is that we have gospel unity in the church. We have gospel unity that, that supersedes our differing doctrinal positions. Now we have, in this church, we have, we have a, a statement of faith, and, and we require that in order to be a member of this church that you, uh, that you believe the statement of faith without, without reservation. And so this is a, really our doctrinal standard. And we also affirm that, that our teaching from this pulpit lines up with the 1689 London Baptist Confession. Now, that's not a requirement for membership, but, but our teaching does line up with, with the 1689, as it's called. But in these issues, in the, the 1689 and, and our statement of faith don't mention divorce or marriage. So, so you're, not, you're not held, you're not, we're not saying that, that you must agree with, with everything that we say. 
To say, no, that there is, there is freedom to have different views on these things within one local church. And we have a unity that has been purchased by Christ. When, when Christ died, he broke down the, the wall of, of separation between us and God, but he also broke down the wall of separation between us and other believers. And that, that is true more widely in, in other denominations and other churches, but, but the local church is a picture of the unity that, that we have in, in Christ. And so when we have, have joined together as, as one body, we, we have this unity that, that supersedes tertiary issues. And so we remember that, that again, that, that our unity is purchased by the blood of Christ. And so we need to strive to, pr to promote and to protect that unity, even in these issues that, that to us might feel tertiary. But to others, it might be very, very close to home. And then that takes us to the fifth principle, that of, of, of understanding and, and well, seeking to understand as best you can how this issue affects other people. We're not just saying, well, this is my doctrinal view. I'm going to go around with a baseball bat and whack people over the head with my doctrinal view. We have to remember that, that these issues affect others personally, deeply, and there's often great pain associated with it. Now, I thank God that, that I have no idea of what it's like to, to go through divorce. But there's people in our church who do. And we need to love them. We need to understand that, that, that other people with other views have, have and, and, and who have experienced this have pains associated with it. And so we need to, as best we can to, to try to, to come alongside and to love and to support and, and to listen rather than just to, to spout off our own views. loving each other. And as we, we go through this, I need to say that, that if through the, the course of, of studying this together, you, there's something here that, 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 that you are, are personally hurt by or offended by or that you don't understand, please come and talk to me. If, if, you, are, if you are encountering, if you have unresolved issues because of this, please come and, and talk to me, Pastor Joshua. Ladies, Seek a godly woman in the church and, and reach out to her for, for counsel and for support. And especially if you are going through something like this in the moment. If you are in a, a very hard marriage where, where maybe your husband's even committed adultery. Maybe your, your husband is, is committing adultery in his, in his heart on the internet. Don't struggle with that alone. Seek help. You need support in this as well. Especially if, if, if your husband is, is abusive. Emotionally or physically. This needs to be addressed immediately. Immediately. And, I, and especially in the case of physical abuse, that the authorities need to be brought into this. But again, this, these are personal issues. They... they they affect us personally. And if it hurts one part of the body, then, then you also as part of the body should feel the hurt as well. 
So those, those are the, the five principles, those five overarching principles that, that actually um, guide and, and, and direct us when it comes to the issue of divorce or marriage. And, and again, I trust in, in many other areas of, of controversy and difficulty as well. Again, they're, they're summed up in, in three points. Relationship with God's word, gospel hope in God's word, and, and gospel peace in God's word. So those are the, the five principles. And now let's look at the five steps. Okay, so now it's quarter after 11. I don't have a lot of time left. With that, I want to I dive into, the, dive into the, the passage itself. Again, there's, there are five key steps that, that you need to, to go through when you approach God's word. And, and you should really do this all the time, but again, especially in these difficult issues. The first is to pray and pray and pray. The Bible is God's word. It's God's word. And God has a will with respect to God's word. God's will for you in his word is that you will understand his word and that you will submit to God's word. And so you need to go to God in prayer because when you pray that that God, help me to understand, help me to, to submit to this, help me to apply this in my life, help me to know what to do practically with, with what this is, that, that, with what this is saying. God is going to answer that prayer. So go to God's word and, and, and pray and, and or sort of go, go to God rather in prayer. And, and, and as we think about what prayer is, remember that, that prayer is primarily to the Father, through the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's the, the general pattern for prayer. But it is entirely appropriate and, and biblical and sometimes necessary to consider the various members, the, the three members of the Trinity as you approach God in prayer. So we should be praying consciously Trinitarian prayers. And so even when you, when you think about the role of, of one member of the Trinity, it should take you back to the, the unity of the Trinity. So with that, then, let's pray again. And I'm going to pray doubly because I'm still locked out of my iPad. We're going to, we're going to pray that, that, that God would, would help us to understand this passage, to submit to this passage, and to, to biblically apply this passage. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, this is a hard passage. And Lord, I confess that I am weak and I am unworthy to be able to communicate these things especially at the moment. But Lord, I know that your word is true. I know that your word is right, that your word is good. I know that your word is inspired, inerrant, sufficient, authoritative, and clear. So help us, Father, as we approach your word to be able to to do what you would have us do with your word. Lord Christ, we pray to you. We're thankful for this, this, that although you never married, that you gave us the example of love, selfless, sacrificial love that that we are to follow in marriage. Lord Jesus, we praise you that, that we are your bride, that you purchased us with your blood. And we pray that, that you would help us to see your example and to repent where we fall short. Lord, that we might grow in your likeness for the glory of your name. We're confident in your blood that your blood will 
will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're confident that you live the life that, that we could never live and that your righteousness is credited to our account. And the only basis of our relationship with you, the only basis of this prayer is because you are our intercessor. We praise you, Lord, that you were raised for our justification and, and now you are seated on high in heaven and at this very moment you're interceding for us before the throne of God. And Holy Spirit, we praise you for it is you who worked in the hearts of godly men so that every single word of the original manuscripts has been communicated exactly how you'd want it to communicate it. We praise you that you have preserved your word and so that even in our, even in our, our English Bibles, or we have something that, that we can, can look to as, as trustworthy, as reliable guides. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will help us to, to, to again, by, because you are the one who's guiding us into truth, you'd help us to understand. And Lord, because you are sanctifying us, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would let this time be one of, of making us more like Jesus. Triune God, we praise you for the fact that you are living, that you are hearing, that you are omnipotent. And Lord, that you will work your will in our hearts for your glory, for our good, and for the building of our church. Amen. So then again, Luke 16, 18, this is our, our passage that's in view. And we, we talked about the first point, which is to pray and pray and pray. Well, the second step then in Bible study is to make a conscious decision by the grace of God to submit to whatever God's word teaches. Again, to, to let God's word, by his spirit, to sit in judgment of us. And I would say no matter how painful it is, no matter what personal cost would come for, for me Rightly understanding and rightly applying this in, in my life helped me to do this. Because you are my God. And I'm submitted to you. This is something, again, you can't do this by yourself. You, that's why you need to pray. You need the Holy Spirit to, to do this in you. To make a conscious decision to, to submit to God's word. Again, as I, as I prayed, God's word is, is inspired. The Holy Spirit carried godly men along so that every single word, exactly what God wanted to be. The word of God is, is without error. It is, it is inerrant. There are no mistakes in, in the Bible, the original manuscripts. It is God's pure and holy word. There's nothing that God's word gets wrong. God's word is, is authoritative. God's word is our, our only and ultimate rule for faith and practice. God's word is the authority. I am not the authority. If, if I am saying something, if any of this is, does, does not agree with God's word, then, then you need to reject what I'm saying. And if it's serious enough, you need to reject me as your pastor. But if what I'm saying is really right and true, it does correspond with God's word, then you have responsibility to accept it and to obey it and even to embrace it. You know, you've, you've heard my story probably many times, but, but years ago, how as an unbeliever, or sorry, or sorry, as a brand new believer, just, just really a matter of a few months old on the Lord, and I, I first read um, 
in Luke 6 about if, if, if a man slaps you in the cheek, you're to turn the other cheek. And if somebody takes your cloak, you are to not withhold your tunic from you. And remember, in, in reading this, I was, I was indignant. I was like, that's not how it works. And when I, I spoke to a, to a friend of mine who was, was seemingly more mature than the Lord, and he, and he said to me, John, like, when, when, when you come across something in God's word that, that you disagree with, don't try to, to shift God's word to, to fit your thinking. Your thinking needs to change to submit to God's word. That's some of the best advice I ever got. That I need to submit to all of God's word, not just the easy and the comfortable parts. And then fast forward about 15 years when, see this is one of the blessings of marriage, when your wife bails you out. One of the blessings of of, of of having that kind of counsel is that it helped to steer me in the right direction. Well, fast forward 15 years and, and I found out that, that he had left his wife. And he'd done so for, for even if if even if we would admit that that um, that, that adultery and desertion are grounds for, for divorce, that even if we allowed for that, that, that's actually not the case here. He left his wife unbiblically. He had no basis biblically whatsoever to leave his wife. So I, I called him. He was, he was working as a professor down in the States by this point. I, I, I called him, and it had been a long time since we talked, and, and so we caught up a little bit. Then I, I asked him about what was happening, and he explained the situation to me. And, and you know, I listened carefully and compassionately, but then I, I, I said, brother, I have to humbly remind you of that advice you gave me 15 years ago. You told me that, that if there's somebody in God's word that I don't agree with, that I, I, I can't try to change God's word to fit my thinking. My thinking has to change to fit God's word. And then he, he told me a, an odd metaphor. He said, well, he said, you know, there's no mosquitoes in the Bible. And so I don't believe in mosquitoes. So he was trying to say, he's saying, if it's not there in the Bible, I don't have to, I, I, I don't have to submit to it. It's like, well, it actually is there, very clearly. But he continued on that track. And, and it, I mean, now he'd be to the point where, where he believes that, that homosexuality is totally acceptable. He's just continued on that trajectory because he's rejected the word of God as his authority. And all of us, we make that choice. We're setting ourselves out on a trajectory. So again, the first point then is, is we need to be able to pray. Then secondly, consciously submit to God's word. And then third, we need to read the passage. Read the passage slowly and carefully and, and getting kind of an echo there. Uh, we need to read the passage slowly and carefully several times. And as part of this process, we should really look at, at various translations uh, of the scriptures in, in order to, to get a full sense. And it, as you're, I hope you're aware that the Bible was originally written, the Old Testament in, in Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic and the New Testament in Greek. You know, obviously most of us don't have access or to, to fluently read the Bible in its original languages. So these, these various translations 
good translations can, can be very helpful. And so the, I would really recommend that you spend some time, look at the ESV, the, the, the NASB, the, the King James, New King James, and, and the NIV, and, and, and even some, some, some of the better paraphrases. Just quickly, the difference between a translation and a paraphrase, a translation takes the original language and translates it word for word, and occasionally thought for thought. Okay, it's better to, to well, you, you really must rely on translations. I believe the best of the, the modern translations are the ESV and the NASB. I'd be happy to talk with you about, about my reasoning on that. Paraphrasing, on the other hand, they, they take the ideas of the passage and, and try to, to translate it into, into modern language. Now, again, they're useful tools, but, but you really must not rely on them. Because, because quite often they're, they're adding to the, the word in order to take the, the author's the, the, the translator, the paraphraser's um, idea and, and to communicate it. And, and so while they can be helpful, you must not rely on them. So let's just look at a couple of these verses. Or these verses in a couple of these, a couple of these different translations. So the, the ESV, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Straightforward and clear. Nasby, almost verbatim, the same. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. King James, whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. So now as we, we, we think about this, think about, so we, I read the, the ESV and the NASB, the King James, you see the similarities there. They're almost identical. But the King James uses the word putteth away instead of divorce. Now that, that putteth away is, is actually a, an accurate, in fact, a more literal translation of the word. But, but in this context, putteth away and divorce actually really have essentially, they mean the same thing. But I want you to just to keep the importance of individual words in mind. We're going to come back to that in a moment. So now I'll paraphrase the, the New Living Translation. For example, this is a quote, for example... A man who divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery. And anyone who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Again, almost verbatim, but you see the difference there? It actually adds the words at the beginning. For example. For example. Now, for example is actually not in the original Greek. And they've added it. And though I think that the... the the practice of adding to the word of God is, is dangerous if relied upon. Here it's actually helpful in, in the way that it links the verse with its context. Okay, it's, it's not there in the Bible. Okay, it's, it's a paraphrase. It's been added to. The for example is not originally there. But it helps us to remind us that this passage, that this verse does not occur on its own. It takes place in a context, a broader context. And so then that takes us to, to, the, to the next step. To step three, to examine the context. Again, I believe that one of the biggest hindrances, if not the biggest hindrance to understanding God's word, is the failure to understand the context. Both the immediate context and the wider context. Many people lead themselves and others astray by proof texting, by, by pulling a, a verse out to mean something that it really doesn't mean. And I remember when I, years ago, I, I was preaching 
in First Corinthians chapter twelve, I'm doing a mini series on on the the spiritual gifts, and, and you you know my my theology on these things that I'm practically speaking a, a cessationist. But I did this on purpose. My first line in my sermon was, "I am charismatic." Let that hang there for a second. Now, there's context to that. I said, if you are a Christian, you are charismatic too, because charismatic just means gift. But, but some individuals in the church held on to that I, I am charismatic statement, and they, they drew the conclusion that, that I was actually confessing that I'm really charismatic. If you listen to the context of the, the rest of the sermon, you've understood this is not at all what I was saying. Context is important. Context is very important. You might have heard about the, the man who was, was seeking guidance and was, was randomly looking through the Bible for guidance. He said, I'm not sure what to do. I'll look in the Bible. And so he just would close his eyes and he'll point at a, at a verse. And he came to the verse that says, he went and hanged himself. And he's like, well, that can't, that can't be it. It's got to be something else. So he, he, he went just a few more pages earlier and, he said, and it said, what thou must do, do quickly. See the importance of context? That it's not saying that you should go and hang yourself, let alone to do, it, do it quickly. It's you need to understand the context of the scriptures. So then what is the context of Luke 16, 18? You need to understand this verse in light of what Jesus is doing. Remember that Jesus has just been teaching his disciples about the importance of using the resources that God has given us to strive to enter into the kingdom of God. Okay, to, to, that, that's why he commended this, this dishonest steward because this dishonest steward was, was using resources to prepare for himself. And, and Jesus is saying, be like that, not in the un, ungodly sense, but to strive to enter into eternal life with the resources that God has given you. And then he went on to say that you cannot serve God and money. But as we saw last time, the Pharisees sneered at Jesus as he, as he taught that. They actually ridiculed Jesus, and Luke tells us why. He provides an editorial comment. He said that they, they, saw, they, it, they were lovers of money. The Pharisees were lovers of money. So then Jesus told them that their attempts to justify before themselves before others were an abomination to God. And then he reiterated the importance of striving to enter into the kingdom of God. And he reaffirmed the ethical requirements of the law of God in the strongest terms. As we just read a few moments ago, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So then it's context in, in Luke 16, Jesus is affirming the continuation of the law and he's demonstrating the Pharisees who deem themselves to be teachers of the law are actually lawbreakers. So you need to understand this, this verse in light of its context. So in this case, again, the NLTs, for example, is correct. God's teaching on the law, Jesus' teaching on the law when it comes to divorce and remarriage continues. But the Pharisees, however, break the law with their teaching. The, the teaching of the Pharisees break, breaks God's law and they break the God's law themselves so they are not trusted as guides. And in the historical context, the, the rabbinic schools of Hillel and Shammai are, are well known to have a debate on the proper grounds for divorce. 
And while Hillel was the, the more liberal of the, the rabbinic scholars, the, the Pharisaic scholars, taught that, that you could divorce your wife for pretty much anything. Because that was his interpretation of, of Deuteronomy 24. We'll get there in a second. But Shammai, on the other hand, was, was much more conservative, and he only allowed a, a couple of grounds for divorce, including adultery. I hope you're getting to see where I'm going with this. If Jesus were to side with Hillel, Shammai, it would be contrary to everything else he's been doing when it comes to the Pharisees. Jesus has been critiquing the Pharisees all along. So Jesus is not going to say, well, okay, Shammai is right, Hillel's wrong. They're both wrong. The Pharisees were wrong all over the place. And so Jesus is using this as an example to show that the Pharisees are lawbreakers. And the law that they're breaking is, is right here in, in 1618. This is the law of, this is the, the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. So the Pharisees, by whether they were with Hillel or whether they're Shimei, they're, they're, they're committing adultery and they're promoting adultery. Again, this is the context. It is so, so important. Jesus is not, does not agree with either side. He's actually expounding on the law. He is showing that his ethical teaching is in line with the law of God, while that of the Pharisees is not. So now let's briefly consider the wider context. Let's, let's go to the other teachings of Jesus on the subject. Normally, the, the next step when you're considering context is to go to other passages in, that, in the broader context is just not that immediate passage to go more broadly within, within that particular book itself. And so as you go more broadly in Luke's gospel account, there's really not much that he talks about here about divorce, uh, let alone divorce your marriage, except he does talk about the, in uh, 319, he speaks of Herod's adultery. And he doesn't really deal with it in, in Acts at all. So then we would take the next step was to go to other gospel accounts where, where we see the teaching of, of Jesus recorded. Now time won't permit me to, to, uh, to go exhaustively in this, but, but let me just take a few verses. First, Mark 10, 11, 12. If you have your Bible, I just encourage you to take a look at that. Mark 10, 11, and 12. It's not a whole lot longer here, so, so bear with me. Mark 10, 11, and 12. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another, commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is almost verbatim with Luke 16, 18. And notice there is no exception. There's no exception in, in Mark either. Now turn to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, and, and briefly, you, you, can, you can just to summarize, you can, you can see here at the beginning of, of Matthew 19, that this issue hinges on, on Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees on their allowances of divorce. This is the issue, the context, the historical context that I just mentioned. And notice here that, that they come to him saying, is it lawful for to divorce one's wife for any cause? And notice that Jesus doesn't give grounds for divorce. But he points to hardness of heart as the reason for divorce. And the issue is, is related to Deuteronomy 24. And so just keep your finger there in Matthew 19 and, and flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. So I know it's hot. At least it's hot up here. 
um, but, uh, but we won't have a whole lot longer here. Matthew 24, 1 to 4. Look at, at verses 1 to 3, where, where Moses is describing the situation where, where a man marries a wife and then finds no favor because he's found some indecency in her. And there, there's different understandings of what that word indecency means. But he, he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her away. Okay, and then she, she goes and marries somebody else. And then the second man hates her and writes a certificate of divorce as well. And then, and then this guy, the guy dies, the guy that she'd married dies. And then, now notice here, there's, there's no prescription here. This is descriptive. This is describing a situation. This, there's no permission here, or let alone no command here. But the Pharisees took it that, that, that Moses was commanding as Jesus says here back in, in chapter uh, Matthew 19. No command. Just, a, just an explanation. They describe a divorce that's taking place. They do not give license, let alone prescribe divorce. But then verse 4 says, now with a command comes that, that she is not to marry the first guy because she's been defiled. The reality is, again, that this is the issue, again, the principal issue here is adultery. Because if, if divorce and remarriage were allowed, then she would not be defiled. They're saying that she'd been defiled by, by this second marriage, and she, he's not allowed to take her back. So again, now back to 19, Matthew 19. Notice that Jesus here refers, in, in verses uh, Verse 6, sort of 5 and 6. Notice that Jesus is referring here to God's institution of marriage back as a creation ordinance, back in Genesis 2. And, and you find Paul does this repeatedly when he's talking about marriage. He, he, he goes back to creation as a creation ordinance. Back in creation when, when there was definitely no allowance for divorce. That there's, there's no grounds for, for divorce. He says here, he says, he says that he, well, Jesus is appealing to the sanctity of marriage as a creation ordinance. From the beginning, it was not so. From the beginning, there was no grounds. But your hearts were hard. Your hearts were hard, and that's the problem. Okay, one more verse. Oh, two verses, actually. Matthew 5, 31 32 that I read earlier. Whoever divorces his wife... So I referred to earlier, um, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this is this verse is the kicker. Okay, this is this is the verse that 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 people often resort to in, in order to appeal to a uh, the, the two exceptions view. And we've said we've established at the beginning that scripture never contradicts itself. So either, either Luke is, is, is not including part of the equation, and, and when he sounds like he's speaking absolutes, or it's, it's Jesus and, and Luke is not really speaking absolutes, that there is actually an exception, or, or there's something else going on here. And I believe that's the case. I believe there's something else going on here. Again, think about the context. This is the, Matthew 5 is part of the Sermon of the Mount. 
And the context is, again, similar to our passage this morning. Jesus is showing that the ethical requirements of the law still stand. He said that explicitly in Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Right? Heaven and earth will pass away before even a jot or a tittle pass away from, from God's law. The ethical requirements of the law still stand. And so what Jesus is showing in, in the Sermon on the Mount is how the Pharisees get the law wrong. Uh, we as Christians need to get the law right. Jesus is, is talking about the ethical requirements of the kingdom of God. Now, this is a little bit technical, and maybe it's too hot for technical, but we'll try anyway. I'm going, for, I'm on it now. The argument hinges on the word that, that's translated immorality. The, the word that's translated immorality there in, in, verse, um, in verse 32, except on the ground of sexual immorality. Now, so this then takes us to the fifth and the last step. This is of, of word study. We're going to get back to the words that are used here, some of the key words that are used in, in Luke 16 in a moment. But, but while we're in Matthew 5, let's just look at do a quick word study of this, of this word that's translated immorality. Having looked at the context, the broader context, it's like you're taking a, a wide-angle lens. Okay, looking at, at the broad picture of the Word of God. And then we get into word studies, like you're getting at a macro lens. You're actually, you're, you're actually looking up really close and when you study God's word, you really need to, to do both. You need to look at the forest, and you need to look at the trees. Right? You need to look at each individual leaf. You've got you to do both. Okay, so, so now, we're getting, now we're getting macro. Jesus says that, that uh, is allowed to put away one's wife in the case of sexual immorality. Now, the, the word, and I don't usually quote Greek here, but, but I think it's important in this particular case. The word that's translated sexual morality here is pornea. Pornea. Pornea is, is you're probably familiar with that word. Right? The word pornography comes from the Greek pornea. And pornea is never used in Scripture. Never. Not once is pornea used in Scripture to refer solely to marital unfaithfulness. Never once. It always refers to wider sexual morality unless the context clearly, clearly shows otherwise. Okay, pornea, it's, it's a more broad word. It's sexual morality. It's not adultery. That's a different word. We'll get there in a second. It's a word moikia. But this word, that is, this sexual immorality, is, is more broad. And so, so what is the significance of this? Well, I think it's helpful, again, to think about context. Why is this only in Matthew? Why is the, the only apparent exception to the permanence of marriage, the only, well, the clearest one, Matthew, Paul is used in, in, to talk in uh, 1 Corinthians 7, talk about, about um, desertion, but what we're, we're not going to go there now. I don't have time for that, but and I, think, I think I can establish the case here well enough that it applies to both. But why is it only in Matthew? Again, Scripture doesn't contradict Scripture. Because of, of the audience, the audience to whom Matthew is writing. Matthew is writing his gospel account to Jews. If you, as you read through Luke's, or through Matthew's gospel account, is it is a distinctly Jewish piece of literature. Whereas Luke, remember, is written to the Gentiles, and the Jews had a particular custom of of betrothal, a betrothal, and in the betrothal, if if you were betrothed to somebody, it's like it's a, like a step between engagement and marriage. 
When you're betrothed to somebody, you, you actually are required to write a certificate of divorce in order to separate from them. Okay, you see this very clearly when, when Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant, he is going to write her a certificate of divorce because he believes that she has been immoral. Again, this is in Matthew. It's not in the other, it's not presented the same way in the other gospel accounts. So I believe what's happening here, this, this, this certificate of, of divorce is speaking of something before marriage. It's talking about betrothal, not actually marriage. And, and again, this is, this is, I think that the context, the historical context is, is quite important here. One of the other, sort of a, a sub-rule of the, the rule of faith is that you must interpret the less clear passages in light of the more clear passages. Okay, and the, 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 the weight of the, the clarity of the passages that do not present any exception whatsoever is clearly on the weight of the permanence view, in my opinion. We could go to Matthew 15 that... that that, that talks about, about these things as, as well. But, but again, let's, let's zero in on, on, this, on, this one word, on this one word that's translated adultery or marital unfaithfulness. It's moikia. Moikia. Okay, that's, that's what's, what's used, again, most commonly in Scripture to refer to adultery, to, to marital unfaithfulness, is moikia. Okay, so in... Uh, um, Matthew 5.20, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent in, 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 has committed moikia in his heart. Okay, although adultery is one specific, is one specific form of, of sexual immorality, there, there are, there's actually um, two, two sinful actions that are taking place here. There's, there's, there's heart adultery, and then there can also be physical adultery, and they're both considered adultery. That's what Jesus is doing here when he's showing that, that if you're committing adultery in your heart, you're saying that it's not that it's as bad as committing actual adultery. It's that, it's that in your heart, it's of the same species as physical adultery. Okay, so this is the word moikia. Again, it's a different word that's used here in Luke as, as opposed to what is used there back in Matthew. Hey, and then look at the word Divorce. Okay, in, in Greek, and so, I'm sorry, so much Greek here, but I think you need it in this particular case. It's apulo, which sorry, apaluo, which which means which means to release. It's used to to, uh, to speak of the Apostle Paul when when the Apostle Paul is is released from prison. Okay, they um, it's and, and guess where else the word apollo is used for divorce and marriage? In this incident we're just discussing, where where Matthew describes. What, what Joseph was going to do to divorce Mary. He's going to loose her. That's how it's translated in the King James. He's going to loose her. And this points to the fact that the word that's used for divorce in Matthew, uh, chapter 5 through 132, rather, is not used for, for marriage, for the breakup of marriage, but of betrothal. So then, how do we apply all of this? So those, those are our, our, our five steps. So we, we pray make a conscious decision to, to submit to God's word. We, we begin to study the context. We begin to look at the, the, the wider context. We do, we do a word study. What, what, what is the, the fifth step that, that we, or sorry, what is the application now based on, the, on these five steps? Well, first of all, I, 
I believe that, please come and see me if you think otherwise, but I believe that, that I have presented a, a clear case for the permanence view of marriage in the discussion of this passage, based on the wider context and the cultural context and, and, and the words in, in question. But how are you going to apply this? You might be thinking, well, what about me? What, what do I need to do with this information? Well, again, I, I don't have time to, to walk through every individual scenario because this, is, this can be a very difficult and complex issue. But I want to, uh, to identify a few, a few key principles. First of all, if, if, if you're struggling with this in any way, please, please, please come talk to me. Talk to Pastor Joshua to find a, find a, a godly lady in the church who can, can offer you biblical counsel on these things. Talk to your talk to your, your care group leader who would, would love to walk through this with you. And pray. Pray, pray, pray. Ask God to help you. Ask God to, to show you what to do. And keep in mind that, that we have to deal graciously and lovingly with those who have different perspectives, and, and especially with those who are personally, personally impacted by this. Again, if, if you are married, God forbid, but if you are married to an adulterer, you need to know personally the love and care of the church. We need to know, not, not because we, we want to, to, to bash the, the, the adulterer in your marriage. We, we want to be able to come alongside and to, and to really help guide that person in repentance as well. But you need care. You need care. You need support. We want to be there for you. We want to do that for you. Likewise, if you are experiencing any form of abuse within your marriage, please, please don't let that, please don't let that go. Don't, don't just accept promises and say it's going to get better. You both need help. The church has the resources to be able to help. Help you both. Now, what about for those who are divorced and remarried? How do you respond to that? What, what should you do with that? Again, if I'm wrong, you don't have to do anything about it. But if I'm right, how do you approach it? Well, first of all, I need to say emphatically that in no way, shape, or form we say saying you should leave the, the one you're, you're now married to. But you need to strive by God's grace to, to, to fulfill the, 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 your responsibilities in this marriage that you are now in. But I believe you also need to repent. I believe you also need to confess it to God as sin. And I believe you also need to confess to the, the one that you were, the, the human that you were sinning against as well. Ask their forgiveness. Perhaps others as well, maybe their, their families. And to really seek the Lord on this. Again, this is something we're not just going to, like, I don't want to appear cold and callous. We want to support you. We want to help you in this. We're not, we're not going to be looked at as, as a second-class Christian. This is, divorce your marriage is not the unforgivable sin. We talked about that a while ago. The gospel is able. The gospel is able to help you in the circumstances that you're in now. The gospel is able, and the resources that God has given you in this local church are able to help to support you and to carry you and to care for you.
And if you're divorced but not remarried, there's something else I would really encourage you to consider. And again, only if that other person has not been remarried themselves, I would encourage you to, to seek to reconcile. You might be thinking, whoa, that's impossible. You have no idea who I was married to. The Lord does. Again, you will need support from the church, much prayer, much encouragement, and, and there, there's wisdom that is needed in the, in the course of this. But it, it comes back to the question, how would God most be glorified? How would God most be glorified? It's through reconciliation. Because remember what marriage is to be. Your marriage is not just about you. It's not just about your spouse. Your marriage is about Christ. It's about the gospel. Your marriage is to be a picture of the gospel. And wouldn't that glorify God? You said, by the grace of God, this is going to be insanely difficult. But I trust God is able to carry me through. I trust that he's given me the resources in his word to be able to to, to comfort me and to care for me. Now, I'm not suggesting, again, for a second you go back um, into, into a, in a, a situation where you or other family members are in danger, physical danger. I'm not talking about that. But we can help you there as well. I know, I know one pastor where he and his wife, actually, there was an abusive situation at home, and the pastor's wife actually moved in with the couple. That's in the trenches, pastor. I'm not saying that's necessarily going to be possible in my particular case, but, but we want to do everything we can to be able to support you in whatever circumstances you're in in order to, to help you to glorify God and to be able to, to live out the gospel to the glory of his name. Again, please, if, if there's anything here that is troubling to you, please, please don't leave here without talking to somebody. We, we want to do what we can in order to be able to, to support you now and, and from now on. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we, it's, it's hot in here. We, we thank you for the, the amount of uh, attention that has been, been granted. Um, Lord, it's, it's certainly uh, infinitely more than I deserve. But Lord, we want to attend to your word. And I thank you for helping us and being faithful by your spirit, Lord, to carry us through. Lord, I pray that you continue to lead and guide us by your spirit. I pray that, that you would help us all to consider these things and, and Lord, to um, to live in light of them for the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name.